Hi, Rob Shank here, your host for this podcast, all about the life, times, and interests of our namesake, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the young, brave, brilliant World War II era church leader who dared to speak out against the evil of Adolf Hitler's racialized Nazi dictatorship. Uh, young Bonhoeffer would lose his life uh, in that struggle, but not before leaving us a marvelous legacy in writing, as well as uh, the eyewitness reports of his life and his work that inspires us to pursue Christian ethics, maybe at a level that uh, we would not normally explore it. Uh, and in doing that, we're mindful of Bonhoeffer's admonition that the central question is, uh, what does Christ require of us in our moment of time? Not in some other time and place, but in our time and in our place. And that's why I tend to have guests on this podcast that represent a broad spectrum of interests and work uh, that has a nexus with Bonhoeffer's own very broad spectrum of interests. And uh, that includes my conversation partner for today. Uh, and this is always a little dangerous when you have a friend on the podcast, because it starts sounding more like a just a kind of insider's uh, convo. Um, but Mark Beckwith is not just a friend, though that would be enough for me. Uh, he is also a colleague, a fellow advocate, uh, particularly in the gun violence prevention space. We're going to talk a little bit about that, but mostly about Mark's new book, Seeing the Unseen Beyond Prejudices, Paradigms, and Party Lines. And I'll get to that. But first, I'm going to say hi to Mark, who's on the other end of this in New Hampshire. I'm in Washington, D.C. Hi, Mark. Hey, Rob. Nice to be here. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. Now, uh, my script requires that I give you a formal intro. So you're a modest man. Take a deep breath. Mm. I, I'm, I'm reading it. Uh, Mark M. Beckwith is the retired bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Newark, where he served for 12 years. While there, Mark co-founded the Newark Interfaith Coalition for Hope and Peace, a network of religious leaders committed to reducing gang violence in the city. He also co-founded Bishops United Against Gun Violence, which has grown to a network of 100 bishops from across the Episcopal Church. Since retirement, he has become part of the leadership team for Braver Angels, a movement that seeks uh, to depolarize America. But I also know that Mark took on yet another responsibility recently, uh, as if you didn't have enough to do in your retirement, dear Bishop, mm -hmm. uh, but you became the co-chair of the new initiative, Faith Leaders for Ending Gun Violence, and I know because I was there in the room where it happened. <laughs> so in case you haven't seen Hamilton, everybody just got to see Hamilton. Mark, um, the one thing I do know about you, uh, and I'm always discovering new things about you, is that you were not 
born into this world as an Episcopal bishop. Can you give us your story and how you come to the place where you are today? Sure. Sure. Thanks, Rob. I, uh, I grew up in the Episcopal Church, and uh, that was the formative religious experience for me. Uh, when I got to college, uh, because I was engaged in the anti-war movement at the time, this is in 1969, 1970, I started attending Quaker meeting. And, uh, and what I hadn't um, fully been prepared for was the silence of their worship. I went because uh, of their commitment to peace. Uh, but in the Quaker meeting worship, you spend an hour in silence. And I was intrigued by that. I was drawn into that. And uh, I even thought about becoming a Quaker, but I missed the scripture reading. I missed the sermon. I missed the music. Mm. Uh, but I was drawn to this organized silence. And I graduated from college and I wanted to live outside of the culture that had formed me. So I had a fellowship to live and teach in Japan for two years, and uh, which was a, another formative experience. And while there, I was introduced to Zen Buddhism. And I studied and I practiced Zen, and I thought about becoming a Buddhist, and, but I did not, primarily because I recognized that, A, it kind of had a, 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 an overarching Asian feel to it. And secondly, the more I dived into uh, Zen Buddhism, the more I discovered that I was really a Christian. But the organized silence of Zen Buddhism was very important to me and continues to be important to me. And silence is a key component of my religious practice. So I continue to sit in silence on a daily basis. And when I came back to this country and attended seminary, uh, I was introduced through Henry Nowen, uh, uh, who was a professor, friend, and mentor of mine, uh, to Christian monasticism. And I had no idea that monasteries existed, all these places of prayer all over the country uh, where communities of faith gathered and prayed regularly and gathered uh, their time, at least individually, and also together in silence. So silence has been uh, a very important uh, component for me. And what I learned in this journey of faith is the more I went to the edge, the edge being silence, uh, the edge being Zen Buddhism, uh, later on the edge being uh, in deeply involved in urban ministry, the more I went to the edge, the more I discovered my center. So uh, I have been uh, committed and interested, inspired by uh, the move to places which are unfamiliar to me, but in that unfamiliarity, in that displacement, I discover God and discover Jesus in new and life-giving ways. Hmm. Well, in, uh, in contrast uh, to your extolling the virtues of silence, uh, I'm going to actually ring a proverbial bell here because I've been talking about actually getting a literal bell to ring every time there's a connection to a Bonhoeffrian concept. And there's a couple of rings uh, on uh, what you just shared because, uh, of course, Bonhoeffer has a lot to say about mm. silence. 
And in a Benedictine structure, uh, he practiced silence as a form of prayer, and he writes extensively about this. I would encourage everybody to quickly uh, go to your index uh, in, uh, uh, in the Buttenhofer works. Uh, go to, you know, I think the index is volume 17, and uh, take a look there um, at what he writes about silence. And it almost leaves me with an impulse for us to have a time of silence, but mm. but <laughs> there's so much to explore with you. Sure. So we'll leave that for another uh, time and if, place. If I may, uh, Rob, uh, twice I've been to the Tizé community in France, which is uh. an ecumenical uh, kind of monastic community. And in their high season in the summer, they'll have five or 6,000 people coming from all over the world. And they worship three times a day. And in each worship uh, service, there is at least 10 minutes of silence. And I remember going there the first time I discovered for me that silence is the world's common language. Mm. Because mm. all these people were coming with their own native languages. God knows how many, and they sing in various languages. But silence it's, is the world's common language. Wow. Uh, not to continue being cute, but I'd like to sit in silence with that for a minute. Mm. It's so powerful, and the implications of that are just enormous. Mm. Well, thank you for that. And, and there are uh, those communities... Uh, dotted around the world. I think there's even at least one or two here in North America. Am I right? Tizé community? Yes. Uh, well, they, they, they have, uh, they come regularly and have uh, events that particularly for young people uh, with their music, which is uh, world renowned because of its chant-like quality, and then they'll do silence. And they usually do something here in this country after Christmas, uh, and they'll have these gatherings of youth all over the world. And uh, uh, there are Teze practicing communities in various uh, churches around the country, which will do Teze worship, I which see. features right. their music and their, and their silence. But I don't know of a specific Teze community, but their influence is, is strong and, and compelling. Yeah, I know it's, it's come up, you know, in conversation and in my travels. And uh, more than once, my wife, Cheryl, has said, you know, uh, she was conscious of the Teze approach and, and was searching and, and we couldn't find anything in, in the immediate region where we are. But, um, but I knew others who had participated at least in those spiritual exercises and disciplines and talked about it over the years. Uh, but you make me more interested in it, uh, in it now. Speaking of silence, uh, before we turned on the recording here, you told me you're on your way to the uh, Scottish Highlands mm -hmm. uh, to, to uh, take a trek, a uh, 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 quite an undertaking. Um, I would imagine there's going to be some 
periods of profound silence when you're when you're in those highlands. I, I, am I imagining that right, or are you going to be? I, I'm hoping for it. I'm yeah. hoping for it. Uh, I'm I'm hiking with a friend of mine who's done this uh, several times before, so he knows the lay of the land. But I've uh, long uh, loved backpacking, partly for that reason, and listening to the silence of the earth and the messages that it uh, puts forth out of its silence. And um, not only what I hear, but what I see. And this is a, I've been to Scotland once before, but uh, this time I'm gonna spend more time there and hopefully the, the rain will hold off at least some of the time and the temperature will be a little more moderate than uh, what I'm prepared for. And uh, we'll be bathed in the, uh, in, in the creation and receive uh, silently and and viscerally the the messages of uh, of God's love as it is merging uh, in this unique place. Yeah, I've been to Scotland a couple of times, but I'm afraid only in the busy cities. Yeah, I've never been up, you know, in those lonely, uh, mountainous uh, mm. regions. So I'll be very interested in your uh, report uh, mm -hmm. when, when, when you come back. Sure. Well, Mark, thank you. Um, I think of our podcast listening circle as family members. I mean, in a way, we're, we're related to each other, and I hear mm. from them a lot, and we talk to each other. And few thousand now, but still there's a level of intimacy to it. And uh, I appreciate getting uh, to know you and, and mm. uh, I, I'm, I'm glad that our, our podcast family gets to know you a, a little bit, uh, at least uh, in some respect, the way I know you. So with that personal background, uh, I do want to talk about, first of all, touch on our common work in mm -hmm. gun violence prevention. It's really, I think, if I remember accurately, how we met uh, yeah. was in that setting. Yes. Was it at the National Cathedral? Uh, we had met before that. We had talked before that. Uh, I had reached out to you and we had this great conversation uh, about our mutual commitment to reducing gun violence. But in the course of the conversation, uh, we discovered that uh, we share this deep, deep faith and come at it from uh, sort of different angles. But uh, and that was certainly intriguing to me uh, because your journey into the faith is different from mine. And I always find that when someone is telling me their story and it comes from a different place, that it just expands my understanding of who I am, who God is, and who Jesus is calling us to be. Uh, I feel the same. And I used to say in, in the old evangelical parlance, I've modified it slightly in this new epoch of my life, but we used to you know, talk about testimonies, uh, that mm -hmm. is, people's personal stories of faith and how they found faith and so on. And I would say I collect testimonies like some people collect stamps. I just <laughs> love to hear yeah. the stories of people's spiritual journeys, even if it's a very different spirituality. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I see faith as so powerful, even, uh, you know, a humanistic 
uh, faith that maybe doesn't mm-hmm. even acknowledge uh, a supernatural being or the divine. Um, that's equally fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so I enjoy just, uh, I don't think I had ever heard you tell your story so succinctly as you did today. Mm. And I really, really enjoyed that. Again, to go back to my old language, uh, I was feeling kind of Holy Ghost goosebumps, we say, <laughs> as you were telling your story. It was just a lovely yeah. telling uh, of that, of that faith journey of your own. Mm-hmm. And that faith journey has landed you in uh, more spaces than the gun violence prevention space. But could, could you uh, summarize how you see the nexus between faith and gun violence prevention, how you fuse those two things in your own heart and mind? Yeah, and, and I think we went around the room when we met at the National Cathedral in early March, which formed uh, Faith Leaders for Ending Gun Violence. You know, what is the galvanizing thing that brings you to this work? And for me, it's Jesus's um, uh admonition uh, and commitment to nonviolence. Mm. And uh, that is what I think really uh, is the foundational component for my commitment to this. And it began uh, with the Newtown, Connecticut shootings in December of 2012. And that was um, an opportunity and an awful opportunity to reach out to some of my colleagues and say, how can we use our moral voice uh, to speak to this scourge of gun violence? And over the course of time, we developed a network of over 100 bishops from around the country, uh, some of whom are in, uh, in situations where gun violence prevention is just part and parcel of, uh, of the conversation and other bishops are places where, where gun rights are paramount. And so how could we find common ground with one another? And so we continue to develop this, uh, this network of bishops and uh, through that have developed relationships with people outside of our network, which is how you and I got to know each other and, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, and want to uh, continue to offer what we can and uh, using the the heritage that we that we uh, carry with us to uh, proclaim and witness to nonviolence, and one of the things that I've learned in this process is uh, to be in relationship uh, with people who look at gun or at the whole gun issue from a different point of view, mm-hmm. uh, particularly gun rights owners. And, and a key moment for me was maybe four years ago, I went to a gun show in Massachusetts. And as I'm walking around the gun show and I'm listening to conversations, I'm listening to a language that I don't understand. Not that they weren't speaking English, but they were using metaphors and talking about a passion that was completely foreign to me. And I realized, okay, if I'm going to be effective in this, I need to learn that language and appreciate it, understand it. And and in the course of uh, developing relationships with people who are committed to gun rights and the Second Amendment and all the things that are attendant to that, I began to realize that those 
of us who are on the gun violence prevention side come at it, and I'll include myself here, with an arrogance, a self-righteousness, and a smugness uh, that is not helpful. Hmm. And uh, want to be able to uh, come to a place where we can understand each other and have a common, uh, a common place where we can at least talk to each other and listen to each other and come to a deeper awareness of what our differences are. You know, you're just saying that uh, prompted a, a memory uh, when I was talking with a long time very generous uh, philanthropist uh, who's an avid gun owner um, and hunter uh, and also carries uh, a weapon for self-defense. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm not sure why every time you bring up this subject, you assume that I face the world as kind of uh, a perpetrator of violence, that that's mm -hmm. because the way I see it, I carry a weapon to stop violence, mm -hmm. uh, to interfere with violence, to end it, uh, not to uh, foster it. Mm -hmm. And it was just a different way that we looked at that lethal weapon, uh, you know, tucked into his belt. Um he, he saw that act as very different from mine. So I appreciate what you're saying because I had to sit with that and think mm. and then try to, try to kind of sit where he was sitting and looking at that. And, you know, of course, he underscored the fact that the, the hundreds of friends and uh, fellow enthusiasts that he's known through his long life, a man in his 80s, uh, he said, I've never known anyone who's killed anyone with their weapon. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, just be careful. And, and I, and I took him, uh, uh, seriously and, uh, begged his pardon, uh, for, for not being sensitive or conscious of that. Uh, and it's helped me, um, in my conversations with a lot of people like him. So, uh, thank you for imparting mm -hmm. that wisdom. Uh, and, and that gets me to kind of another segue, which is, to your work with Braver Angels, which kind yes. of sets the stage, I think, in any case, you may uh, explain it differently, for your book. So Correct. what about Braver Angels? First, can you tell us about it, why you've been a part of it, and, and what you have learned from it? Uh, Braver Angels originally was called Better Angels, which referred to Lincoln's first inaugural address, where he appealed to the better angels of our nature. Well, it turns out that another nonprofit had that, had that name and so had to change the name to Braver Angels uh, for legal reasons, but also we need to be braver. Mm. And Better Angels was created after the 2016 election uh, by three people who were looking at the landscape of the country and seeing this, this polarization uh, is getting worse and we need to do something about it. And what they did initially is call together uh, 11 uh, Trump voters and they had 10 or 11 uh, Clinton voters. This is in 2016 in a facilitated conversation. Uh, and the idea was not to pull one side to the other, 
but is there some common ground that we can claim uh, that enables us to work together and will effectively depolarize this, uh, uh, this country that's moving even more into polarization since then. And so since that initial conversation, December of 2016, uh, there have been over uh, one or 2000 conversations around the country, equal number of reds and blues, again, not to uh, pull one side to the other, but can we find common ground? And there are, are norms that are established at the outset. Uh, and since uh, those first conversations, um, other menu of options have been offered, depolarizing a win, uh, depolarizing within one-on-one uh, -on -one conversations, skills, workshops, alliances have been formed, uh, again, with a a balance of red and blue people uh, who say to the wider community, we don't agree on these issues, but nevertheless, we are committed to one another and we do agree on these principles and on these issues. And because of that, we think we could have an impact in the community. And there are alliances all over the country. There, each state uh, has a state coordinator, uh, there are moderators, there uh, well, there are somewhere on the order of 20,000 people who are members of Braver Angels, but it moves much further uh, and wider than that. Just last week, uh, one of the founders of Braver Angels went to Washington, D.C. and had two conversations uh, with uh, members of Congress, members of the Problem Solvers Caucus. Hmm. which is a group of both Republican and Democrats who are saying uh, we can do better than the polarization that's paralyzed us. Hmm. And they brought braver angels in to help facilitate conversations. That was the first last week. Braver angels is also now launching in the last two weeks, braver politics uh, to invite uh, the candidates from the 6,744 uh, precincts across the country from school boards to Senate, 6,744, to make a commitment to uh, listen to one another, to uh, a pledge to not begin with ad hominem attacks, but to uh, come up with, um, with norms and with civil engagement. Mm -hmm. uh, and the hope is that more and more candidates will subscribe to this and that will have an impact. That will have an impact. A key component, and this leads to the book. Well, let me step back a little bit. Uh, I refer to Braver Angels as the secular version of the Anglican movement. Hmm. Episcopalians are part of the Anglican communion. The Anglican communion, uh, Anglican church was established in the 1500s as the way in between, the via media between Protestantism and Catholicism. If you ask a, an Episcopalian, are you Protestant or Catholic? We can answer yes. <laughs> uh, we're <laughs> right. both or we're neither. So we were created, the Anglican uh, movement was created in tension. And over these 500 years, uh, that tension has been creative has been creative, has yielded uh, a, a new way of looking at things. What we came up with in the Anglican communion uh, is there was scripture and there was tradition. And we came up with a third 
part of the triangle uh, reason, scripture, tradition, and reason. And they live in a, in a creative balance or creative tension with one another. Having said that, uh, my spiritual director introduced me to the term mandorla, which is an Italian word for almond. And it's the shape that's created when you have two circles intersect. Think Venn diagram from sixth mm. grade math. Mm. Uh, and these two circles can never be separated from one another, nor can they completely overlap. And initially, in medieval art, there are lots of uh, images of mandorla, not a halo, which is over the head. No, it's somebody who is within the mandorla, uh, in, in, within this almond. There are a lot of resurrection icons of Jesus being in the mandorla, pulling people out of hell. Mm. Uh, it's this space that's created uh, between two differences. It's a place of transfer transformation. It's a place of resurrection. It's a place that requires risk. Uh, you can't force someone into the mandorla, but you can invite someone into the mandorla. I see braver angels as this process of uh, inviting people into that mandorla space. Mm -hmm. And I see much of the work that we do in gun violence prevention is to invite people into that mandorla space. And one place where that is happening across gun rights people and gun violence prevention people is in the whole arena of suicide. Mm -hmm. Over half of gun deaths are suicide. And that number creeps upward if, uh, 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 if depending on, on the laws in a particular state. In New Hampshire, where I live, over 80% of gun deaths are suicide. And, and the gun rights prevention people and the gun rights people uh, are working together because it's in everybody's self-interest to reduce the incidence of suicide. So how can we do that? How can we do that? And there are all sorts of initiatives uh, that are being very effective and people are working together uh, in a way to um, address gun safety, uh, safe storage. Um, we have a video, the New Hampshire Firearm Safety Coalition just put out a video, uh, two minutes of video of a, 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 gun, um, a, a gun shooting trainer um, at, who works at uh, the largest um, gun shop in New Hampshire and says, well, if, you are, if your guns are for hunting, you need to store them in a locked place away from where other people are. If your guns are for your uh, home defense plan, then he showed all these, uh, all these um, little uh, uh, things. Uh, uh, hand, you put your thumbprint on it and releases the gun that you can have next to your bed. And he shows how it takes 10 seconds to access your gun, but it's locked up because you want it locked up because you don't know who's going to be coming in there, somebody young, a, a kid, uh, whatever, uh, that protects the household. And that can reduce the incidence of suicide. <laughs> wow. Wow. Uh, yeah, I haven't heard of that technology, uh, uh, like a thumbprint release lock of some kind. Is that the, print, uh, the technology? Release, but there are all sorts of dev devices that are, are, are more and more available. 
And I mean, people who say they need guns to protect themselves right. uh, say if it's in a closet downstairs, that's not going to protect me if somebody comes into my house. Right. But if you have this device attached to your gun in the table next to your bed, it takes 10 seconds. And he demonstrates in this video how quick it is to release the gun. So uh, you know, wow, I've got to get a look at that technology yeah, because yeah, um, it's, it's, a lot it, of people it, ask about that. You know, yes. well, yeah, they use exactly that dilemma. You know, if I put it in a safe space, then I'm going to end up dead and my loved ones too because I won't be able to reach it in time. Uh, it, but that seems to be a, a, a creative uh, solution. And, you know, of course, that begs a whole lot of questions for another podcast, and I'd love to do one with you on specifically this subject, which is, you know, when I find people resistant to that, uh, when there are technologies and there are mechanical devices and ingenious, you know, uh, safety uh, mechanisms and and. Uh, uh, you know, uh, safes and, and so forth that they can use. And, and there are some uh, gun owners who will, who will uh, almost um, reject out of hand any attempt as if that's an attempt to control them and limit their options for public, for uh, personal safety. But of course, in, in the case of a bedroom, uh, the numbers of tragic shootings uh, of children who come in late, who who surprise a parent in the dark of night and are mistaken as an intruder are just heartbreaking. And mm -hmm. it, of course, devastates the entire family and the shooter uh, sure. uh, as well. So, those things seem really, really worth looking at it. And the fact that, you know, you're discovering common concern there in New Hampshire is really heartening because I would think when all the vitriol and the polemics and, you know, the politics settle, uh, come on, the vast majority of people love their children. They sure. want their children to be safe, even from the weapon they feel they need to keep them safe. So, uh, wow, I hope, um, I hope we can learn more about that. But for the moment, you did set the stage with the discussion over this search for uh, common concern, uh, that that's kind of what lays the groundwork for seeing the unseen beyond prejudice paradigms and party lines. And by now I should have memorized your publisher because I am enjoying your book so much. Morehouse, oh, good. Morehouse, Morehouse Publishing. Yes. Um, can, can you lay out for us, uh, first of all, what's your thesis? Uh, I could guess at it because I think I've read deep enough now, but you know the whole book, it came out of your heart. So can you give us your thesis? What, what is Seeing the Unseen all about? Well, I'll, I'll tell a story. Uh, when I started my ministry in Newark uh, and in, in, the, in the building there, uh, next to our office in downtown Newark was a Catholic church that was uh, not holding services, but did have a feeding program there uh, twice a day. And I had started soup kitchens. I'd worked in soup kitchens. 
And so I noticed that when I first started my ministry in Newark. But after two weeks, I didn't notice it anymore. I didn't see it. Why? Because I'm up on the fourth floor in my office, looking out across this diocese of over 100 congregations, looking and seeing their opportunities, their challenges, their concerns. And that's where my focus was. And I literally didn't see these men. They were just, uh, they were mostly men who were coming to this feeding program. I didn't see them anymore. Until maybe two or three years in, uh, a priest in the diocese, a woman came up to me and she said, what goes on next door? And I said, there's a feeding program. And she said, let's go. And so we did. A group of us went next door, not to serve the food, but to talk to the men who were coming there at breakfast and lunch. Hmm. And on that first day, I learned that there are 500 people a day who came between breakfast and lunch, mostly men outside, just outside of our windows, uh, adjacent to our property. And I'm embarrassed to say, I did not see them. <laughs> 500 of them. 500 every day. I did not see them. Why? Because I'm looking elsewhere. Mm. And the same woman, after we debriefed uh, our time together, she put her finger in my chest and she said, don't you dare go just once. Mm. And so I didn't. I came back week after week over the years, and I developed relationships with a lot of these men. Of course, there's a lot of turnover, but I developed relationships with some of the regulars, and uh, I discovered that many of them lived with a level of courage and faith that had never been tested to that degree in me. Mm -hmm. And some of them became important teachers to me, uh, and I learned from them, and I was able to see them not as uh, uh, as the poor. And I spend a lot of time in the book talking about the poor. And Jesus talks about the poor uh, when he's in the temple in Nazareth. He comes back uh, and he holds up the the scroll from the um, from the Torah and, and reads from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to. Uh, release the captives, give sight to the blind, let the prisoners go free, and the good news will, uh, the poor will have good news preached to them. Well, this, the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, but the poor have good news preached to them. It doesn't, it doesn't change them. And he refers to them as a category, which means that they don't have names and they don't have stories. And ever since we refer to the poor, which enables us, almost encourages us not to see them because they're just a category. They're just a category. We need to see them. And so I've been very careful, um, not always successful, in referring to people who are financially poor and offer, often have a richness and a, 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 a power and a presence that I need to pay attention to. And how we describe one another, I think, influences uh, how we see them. I tell a story in the book, comes back to my, I think, freshman or sophomore year in college. Bill Russell, of the Boston Celtics, mm -hmm. came to give a speech. And Bill Russell's arguably one of the five best players ever to play the game of basketball. And he, his team, the Celtics, won nine championships in his 11-year career, out of 11 years. And he tells a story about being in, a, uh, uh, in an airport. 
He's in an airport. He's six foot 10, six foot 11. So he stands out and a woman comes up to him and says, oh, you're a basketball player. And he gently and clearly corrects her. No, madam, I'm a man who plays basketball. Mm -hmm. His humanity Mm -hmm. came Mm -hmm. first. Mm -hmm. And when we describe people by category, we reduce their humanity. And uh, we need to use language that uh, uh, confirms their humanity and, and uh, their humanity means that they have names and they have stories that we need to listen to. Mm. And uh, also I talk about in the book, um, the difference between doing for and being with, and so much of Christian mission is doing for someone else. And often we need to do for others. If somebody doesn't have a place to live, we need to find them a place to live. If they don't have enough food, we need to find them food. But often ministry stops at that doing for level, which just reinforces the distance between those who have and those who have less. Hmm. The challenge is, and to enable us to see differently, is to be with, hmm. to be with one another. So it, there's not a hierarchy that everybody has something to offer. Everyone has a story to tell that needs to be listened to. And you never know who your teachers are going to be. So that's, uh, I think, a key component uh, to why I wrote the book and the work that I continually do with myself and with others. Can we speak differently Can we so we can see differently and see one another as, as brothers and sisters in Christ uh, as opposed to someone who is either a stranger or worse, someone who we need to be afraid of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, uh, you have a whole chapter on the language of seeing. Uh, and uh, I think that's such a terribly, terribly important. Uh, here's another Bonhoeffer nexus. I'm going to ring the the proverbial bell again, because of course he talks about uh, the importance of suffering with, Mm -hmm. uh, not simply ameliorating suffering or attempting uh, to relieve suffering, but to actually suffer with, to actually walk with. Of course, it's what drove him to go from the safety of America back to Germany to suffer with his own people. Uh, And I've always found it interesting, Bonhoeffer uh, learned that concept in the Black church here in the United Mm -hmm. States. And he said the way the church suffers with its own was a model of Christ suffering Mm. with with us, and uh, that he had to return to Germany to suffer with his own people so that he could know Christ in, in a mm. deeper way. So I think there's the seeing and the suffering and, and the feeling with uh, the other uh, that comes through uh, in, in the way you treat uh, these subjects. Um, and what about, you know, you're subtitled Beyond Prejudices, Paradigms, and party lines. You alluded to this a little earlier when you said that even you approach some of these questions with an arrogance. I certainly do. You know, mm-hmm. first of all, I'm convinced I'm right. So 
right from the start, there is a prejudice because I'm looking mm-hmm. at my interlocutor and saying, you are wrong. I am right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have a prejudice. Maybe they're a little more right about something than I am. How do we get beyond our prejudices? They're, they're so deeply a part of our formation even, and we're quick to pull, you know, to, to call out somebody for maybe their blatant racism, but we have a lot of subtle biases and, and prejudices, all of every human being does. How, how, do, how do we get beyond that part of the problem? Well, I don't know that we get beyond it, but we can deal with it. Uh, When I first took anti-racism training, I don't know, 20 years ago, uh, one of the key components was, what is your first experience of the other, of being told that somebody is the other? And we all have that experience uh, of the other. And probably the other was thought to be less than, usually it's around race, Uh, Sometimes it's around religion. Sometimes it's around where somebody lives or their education level. We all learned that. We learned it either at the kitchen table or we learned it on the playground or we learned it in the cafeteria. Some of us learned it in our religious communities. We all learned it. And what's important is where did we learn it? Uh, What was the message that we were taught? And is it still true? And if if we really do the work, we'll realize, no, it's not. But that still is in us. And so we learn to manage it. Uh, When people say, I'm I'm not prejudiced, I say, come on, you need to spend more time uh, being honest with yourself because we all inherited some prejudice. Mm. And and it's there. And uh, the question is not to get rid of it. Uh, but how to how does it operate? Uh, when does it show up? Usually, when we're scared or anxious or 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 tired, uh, it will show up. And what do we need to do to rebalance ourselves? Uh, so I think that's just uh, really uh, really important. And uh, again, people will say, "Well, I don't have this this experience." Um, I'm saying, yeah, you, you need to look harder because <laughs> we all have it. We all have it. Uh, I, I have a chapter in the book called Hate Has No Home Here, which I see less now, but they're lawn signs outside of usually suburban homes. And I see them, these signs, as, as a kind of arrogance. Well, I, I don't have hate here. Well, quite frankly, I don't know any household that ha- doesn't have uh, an experience of hate in an impulsive moment. Uh, one of the reasons that uh, so many TV shows and movies have kids, teenagers saying to their parents, I hate you, is because they feel it. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, I never exactly. said that to my parents, but I, I think I felt it at various moments. We mm. all have that impulse. Mm. Now, presumably the signs are, are out there because uh, sometimes hatred morphs into ideology and uh, they don't want that entering into their house. I understand that. Uh, but it also sort of suggests that uh, hate shouldn't exist. Well, it does. <laughs> and we're not going to wipe it out. And I remember Henry Nowen, who is a Roman Catholic priest and my mentor friend and, 
and uh, teacher. And when I was in seminary at Yale Divinity School and who died a bunch of years ago, he talks about uh, the, the challenge for us uh, as, as Christians, particularly, well, anybody, but he was speaking to a group of Christians, uh, that there is always the opportunity for somebody to be redeemed. And when we make the decision that somebody can't be redeemed or cannot be changed, it's not a long journey to get to Auschwitz. Mm -hmm. uh, because the Nazis felt that Jews could not be redeemed or saved. So we get rid of them. Yes. Uh, and that is the most dangerous thing that we can do. Another dangerous thing, and I write about it in the book, is to think uh, in our rightness, and I felt this way, as you expressed just now, Rob, uh, that I'm right, somebody else is wrong, and I'll take it a step further. Oh, God is on my side. <laughs> my experience is, or at least as I read the scripture, the only side that God has ever been on is God's side. <laughs> uh, we can't sort of adopt God and, and use him to uh, advance our own agenda. That is reducing God. That actually is a, a, a breaking of the third commandment, taking the Lord your God in vain. Uh, I learned that is don't say bad words. No, what it really means is don't use God to advance your agenda. Don't say you believe in God if you don't. Don't use God as a tool uh, to promote your whatever it is that you want, want to promote. Uh, and, and, uh, that's all a part of the, the dynamic that I, that I talk about in the book. Yeah. In fact, I might argue, uh, it may have just as much to do with breaking the second commandment of, uh, a graven image. You know, we create mm -hmm. God in our own image to reflect exactly. ourselves instead of, uh, the other way around. Well, Mark, you give us so much. Uh, in what? Uh, I haven't finished the book yet, I confess to you, because uh, I've got three in my stack right now, but uh, 185 pages. Uh, yep. You give us rich content in 185 pages of seeing the unseen beyond prejudices, paradigms, and party lines. I'm going to recommend, first of all, uh, I think you'll enjoy and be edified by this book as much as I have been. Uh, but this is also a great tool. I mean, if communities are struggling with tensions and conflict and polarization, I'm thinking specifically of congregations, but not exclusively, um, other networks, even community groups, um, neighbors, families could benefit enormously from the material that Mark presents in Seeing the Unseen. You'll see uh, a link to the book where you can uh, get it. Uh, if you're clergy, and we have many clergy members of our podcast fam family, we have institutional executives and other leaders. We certainly have lots of activists and advocates. Um, look, first, let's be honest with ourselves, we have these tensions in our own families, in our personal lives. We certainly have them in our professional networks and in our communities. We have them uh, in the organizations that we lead and that we serve in. So 
Mark, thank you. This is like Rob. If I may, just do a a, a, a brief uh, plug for a, a Braver Angels initiative that I that a bunch of us have been a part of. Uh, we're calling it a Christian response to polarization, mm-hmm. and we've designed a process for congregations, uh, and they would require some risk and courage to do this. Can identify a couple of leaders who are on opposite sides politically who would be willing to lead their congregation through a process of depolarization, learning some skills, and we frame it in the Christian context because reconciliation is one of the foundational uh, pieces of work that we need to do as the Christian family. And what we're learning is that there are all these congregations uh, that either often are split around uh, the political polarization or have tamped it down so much that it, uh, it, 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 it's out of sight, but it's not out of mind because it's, it's so real and so uh, uh, um, urgent in our culture today. So we have resources, Braver Angels does, for congregations and more and more congregations are, are stepping up to avail themselves themselves of this resource of uh, community collaborations network, uh, Christian response to polarization. Great. Well, we'll make sure we put a link uh, for where uh, folks can obtain that resource sure. in the text surrounding this podcast. So if if you're listening in motion and you're worried, oh, you know, I, I didn't get where I can find that, don't worry about it. As soon as you're stationary, uh, take a look at the text surrounding this podcast and you'll see a live link uh, so that you can get to that material uh, (laughs) provided by Braver Angels. Uh, Man, Mark, we could go on and on, but we're going to tax the patience of our listeners, but you and I will keep our conversation going, I hope, for a long time to come and even more our collaboration. We, we consider you a friend of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, so you're in the family. And mm-hmm. if folks would like to communicate with you, uh, I'm going to suggest after reading Seeing the Unseen, but um, is there a way to contact you? Can, can folks uh, make contact with you? Yes. Um, uh, I have a website, markbeckwith.net. And uh, I blog regularly on that, uh, sort of an extension uh, of the book. And that's the way that people can get into contact with me. Uh, so that would, you know, uh, welcome that. And uh, also through the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, that's a, that's a way to do it as well. Great. Well, we'll put a link to your uh, website and blog uh, so that folks can benefit uh, from your storehouse of uh of wisdom. How long in ordained ministry, uh, Mark? How many uh, years? Next month will be 43 years. 43 years. Okay. Yeah. I, I celebrate 40 this month. So mm-hmm. I'm just behind you, but um, <laughs> that's a lot of life lived. That's a lot of service given. That's a lot of insights uh, gained. So thank you. Uh, oh, for thank you. And I'm, I'm ones. so grateful for this time and for uh, our deepening friendship. And I'm just so grateful uh, for the opportunity to have served God in the church in the corner of the Jesus movement that uh, has Mm -hmm. called me. Uh, It's been an enormous gift and continues to be so. 
Well, once upon a time, uh, I was I was conducting my spiritual sojourn far from you, and uh, and I'm trying to make up for lost time. And it's just been a wonderful enrichment for my own spiritual life to know you, to have mm. this conversation, to collaborate in what I call the the vineyard, to be out there working. Uh, and uh, so I I'm hoping our other family members will will experience the same reading your blog, reading your book, hearing this podcast, maybe uh, God willing and the pandemic abating someday, we'll all be finding each other in in common spaces in the third dimension. For now, uh, we'll do the best that we can and, and you've done a, a great uh, uh, service to the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute just uh, with your allied, uh, comradeship, and especially with resources like this, we'll be putting this on our to-be-read list at the Institute. Mark, thank you for being my thank conversation you, partner today. Thanks, everyone, for spending your time with us a little more than usual, but for good reason. And uh, we'll see you again in the next episode. <laughs>